Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.22, The Intolerable Acts. Heading into the spring of 1774, there was a handful of truths that both the colonists and the leadership in London were having to face. In the colonies, there was some disagreement over how to deal with the tea coming into those colonies. This debate largely split down between how the Bostonians had dealt with their tea, throwing it into the Atlantic, versus the response in Charleston, where the tea was allowed to land, but then was locked away in a silo where it would rot. Same outcome, radically different direction. Aside from this disagreement, however, the more important thing is that all of the colonies seemed to be in complete agreement that the duty auntie could not be paid under any circumstance. Meanwhile, in London, there was near universal disdain towards the actions of the colonists. The imperial crisis was no longer something new, nor was it something that was just going to blow over. This had been going on now for nearly a decade, and the British were mighty sick of their colonists. This anger would boil over on that January 29th hearing before the Privy Council, where Benjamin Franklin endured a humiliating dressing down during his time in the cockpit. Events would not, however, end with Franklin's ordeal. The destruction of the tea had seemingly pushed events further than Lord North's ministry was willing to bear. As we are going to see this week, it was no longer about attempting to extract revenue out of the American colonists. Years of unrest had Parliament desperate to reassert their authority over their wayward American colonies. The plan now was to punish the colonies for their actions and force them into submission. Lord Dartmouth had replaced Lord Hillsborough as the American secretary in 1772. Dartmouth was an interesting figure. He was not a universally hated figure, and indeed to some, his appointment was seen as a positive. He was seen as being a potential ally in an otherwise unfriendly administration. Some Americans had taken to corresponding with Dartmouth in the hopes that they could solidify him as somebody within the North administration that would be receptive to their cause. This was not universal, however. Sam Adams, for instance, saw attempts to woo the new minister as pointless. Adams was in no need of friends within the administration. Although he was an absolute supporter of parliamentary supremacy over colonial matters, initially Dartmouth attempted to move things in a more moderate direction. Instead of going after the whole of Massachusetts, and more specifically Boston itself, Dartmouth instead focused on bringing the ringleaders of the Tea Party to justice. Dartmouth had confirmed, through a ruling from none other than Wedderburn, that the destruction of the tea was tantamount to treason. This, however, was to come to nothing for two reasons. First, the colonists had pulled off the Tea Party with little evidence of who the actual ringleaders were. It is probably safe to say that the Empire looked at the usual suspects, men like Hancock and Adams. However, the investigation was unable to produce enough evidence to support a prosecution. More than that, however, this was not a moment of moderation for the cabinet. By the beginning of March, the details were being hammered out 
on a plan to punish the colony with the closing of Boston Harbor. On March 14th, North announced his plans to close Boston Harbor. One of the features of what was being referred to as the Boston Port Bill is that it was meant to be a punitive action against Boston in particular. Of course, we know that Boston was not alone in their actions against the East India Company tea. New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston had also taken actions against the tea. North, however, put the blame squarely on the shoulders of Boston. In London, Boston was being blamed for not just the destruction of their tea, but also for the agitation that led the other colonies to action. Of course, we know that this is not exactly true. Both New York and Philadelphia had been far more active in resisting the tea, with Boston lacking behind the other two cities. Well, Boston's resistance had certainly gone further than elsewhere. They were not alone. However, pragmatically for the cabinet, it made sense to focus on Boston alone. The bill would, along with a few other acts that we will talk about in a couple of minutes, hopefully help rein in the excesses of Boston. It was limited enough in scope that it would not enrage the other colonies, but at the same time it would serve as an example to everybody of what resistance to British prerogative could mean. Sure, the other colonies would complain. However, the limited scope of the action would hopefully prevent a more widespread outbreak of unrest. A few days after being introduced, the Port Bill was presented to the House of Commons. In the past, we had seen these bills at least get wrapped up in some debate, somebody advocating for the rights of the colonists. Here, however, the bill passed without anything much in the way of opposition. Even amongst those who had in the past shown American sympathies, men like the Earl of Chatham, William Pitt, supported the closure of the harbor, believing that the actions of the Bostonians were criminal. Isaac Barr, the man who had vehemently stood against the passage of the Stamp Act and in that effort coined the term Sons of Liberty, was cheering the adoption of the Port Bill, finding it to be a moderate action. The Port Bill passed through both Houses of Parliament with ease, illustrating just how few friends the Americans now had in London. By the end of March, everybody was in agreement, and the King had signed off on the bill. As of June 1st, Boston Harbor would be closed to virtually all shipping. Boston Harbor would remain closed until George III decided that it was time to reopen the port, something which was predicated first upon repayment for the lost tea. Also, part of the act was the relocation of the Massachusetts capital from Boston to the, hopefully, less radical Salem. Although the Port Bill is the most well-known and the most disruptive of all of the acts, it was just one of several acts that would become known as the Coercive Acts, and in the colonies, the Intolerable Acts. All of these actions would be passed with relative ease, although it should be noted with slightly less ease than the Port Bill was passed with. So, let's move through the other changes that were made to help bring Massachusetts, and specifically Boston, to heel. Up next was the Massachusetts Government Bill, 
which sought to essentially do away with the Massachusetts Charter. Those living in Massachusetts held their charter in high regard and clung to it as a guarantor of their rights. Originally issued by William III, it had governed the colonies since the 1690s. As a reminder, should you want to get more information about said charter, you can go back and listen to episode 3.3 for much more specific details. The first task was to regain control over the council. The council, which should have functioned like an upper house, was always meant to be more closely aligned with the governor. As we have seen over the last 22 episodes, however, in function, this was not the case, as the council was neutral at best, and more often sided with the radicals. Under the new system in Massachusetts, the House would remain a representative body. The council would be appointed in London, assuring that they would be a far more loyal bunch to future governors. The governor would gain the ability to replace civil officers as needed. Town meetings, which had become such an epicenter of events, were banned, except when granted permission from the governor. This would effectively end the ability of the colonists to run what had become something of a shadow government, as things like the committees of correspondence would run clearly afoul of this new law. Finally, local sheriffs who were appointed by the governor would now select juries, rather than the colony's freeholders. This assured a jury system that is far more friendly to the British than had previously been the case. Along with the government bill came the Administration of Justice Act. This act was limited in length, set to expire three years after passage. It stated that should any military or civil official be charged with a capital offense, they would be sent back to Britain for a trial. The logic behind this is that it would avoid potential catastrophes like what existed following the Boston Massacre. Recall that there was real fear that those involved were looking at the possibility of swinging from gallows in Boston Common. The thought of British regulars or customs officials being executed publicly in Boston after being convicted by a jury of the local rabble was the cause of significant concern back in London. This would assure that such an outcome would not come to pass. It is, of course, a good time to remind everybody that this fear also did not come to pass during the trials of the Boston Massacre, where the soldiers were acquitted of the most serious charges. Parliament would also take this time to pass the Quebec Act. Among its provisions was a plan that would have seen a large amount of the Ohio country absorbed into the jurisdiction of Canada, and would see it administered from Quebec. Part of this act called for a more permanent Indian settlement in the Ohio country, something which the British had been pushing for since the proclamation line a decade before. This had the practical effect of raising questions over colonial claims in the region, questions that had first appeared in the aftermath of Pontiac's war. Finally, the Quebec Act reintroduced Catholicism, and the ability of the church to collect tithes. 
though not as grating on the colonists as having their land claims potentially invalidated, we are still talking about a colonial population that came with deep anti-Catholic sentiments. It therefore should not be any surprise that the reintroduction of the free practice of Catholicism was not met with enthusiasm. The final act had to do with quartering. This is, of course, not our first time dealing with quartering in this podcast. And indeed, it was something that had been an underlying issue throughout the Imperial Crisis and going back to the French and Indian War. Under the new act, the British gained far more latitude as to where they could place troops when the situation so demanded. This act bypassed more of the standard channels of allowing the town and the magistrates to figure out where to keep troops, and instead granted the power to the governor, should it take more than 24 hours for the magistrates to figure it out. It is important to note, however, that it did not permit quartering in private homes. This particular act is important for a few reasons. First, as historian John McCurdy points out, it is one that has often been misunderstood as allowing for billeting in private homes, which it did not do. It also gives us a pretty big clue that the question of where to keep troops might be an issue coming up. Sure enough, Thomas Gage, who was also the new governor of Massachusetts, was coming over with four regiments to help enforce the new acts. Overall, the 1774 Quartering Act did not really matter all that much, as the colonists are largely going to just ignore them. As we are going to see next time when we discuss the Continental Congress, the Quartering Acts were almost completely absent. Even Thomas Gage never really got too taken in by the prospect of quartering, likely because by the time he took over, it was abundantly clear that there could be no peaceful coexistence. Nobody in any of the colonies was at all in doubt that the British were going to respond to the destruction of the tea. Tensions in Massachusetts did not ebb following the destruction of the tea, but rather remained high moving into 1774. That January, a customs official, John Malcolm, had seized a ship for lack of the proper paperwork up in Maine. The locals were not thrilled by this move and decided to tar and feather John Malcolm. Following this, Malcolm went to Boston to request that Hutchinson order the men tried for his ordeal. This went over about as well as you probably would expect. Shortly after his arrival and his request was made, a group of boys and young men assaulted Malcolm. In the process, Malcolm injured one of the boys while defending himself, and then very shortly thereafter, found himself on the wrong side of an arrest warrant. Malcolm, attempting to avoid arrest for a bit, was stymied when a large group of Bostonians found him. He was severely beaten, tarred and feathered again, and forced to resign when he was led to the gallows and a rope was placed around his neck. That March, it was Andrew Oliver who found himself on the receiving end of the colonists' fury when he was booed and heckled mercilessly during his funeral. That's right. 
The colonists turned out in droves to literally boo a dead guy. Although Oliver himself did not object much, being dead and all, it was certainly not something that went unnoticed. Well, this speaks to the anger of the colonists. It also presented a problem for the leadership back in Boston. Sam Adams was not about to come to the defense of either Malcolm or the deceased Oliver. However, following an incident in Marblehead that featured the destruction of a hospital, Adams recognized that people's anger needed to be properly focused. Adams made no secret that he was not a fan of the response to the Stamp Act, and had been hard at work to ensure that this movement would not be defined by mob violence. The destruction of the tea was different, to be sure, since the colonists had tried lawful means first, before the destruction became the last remaining remedy. Adams was not alone here either. During the annual ceremony to mark the Boston Massacre, John Hancock delivered a fiery speech about the dangers that were posed from a standing army. He detailed the exposure of Hutchinson and his plans to strip away their rights before he turned to focus on the future. What Hancock proposed was that a Congress be held with representatives from all the North American colonies. As the situation became more dire in the colonies, Hancock realized that coordination was necessary for the coming stages. Great Britain was going to respond to the destruction of the tea, and when that day came, he wanted the colonies standing together to deal with the threat. We saw the shaky foundations that existed during the response to the Townsend Acts, and how that served to undermine the non-importation agreements. Cooperation and coordination were necessary moving forward. Although Hancock's suggestion gained little immediate traction, in short order, we are going to see just how powerful an idea this would prove to be. On May 12th, the first clear evidence of the British response made its way into the colonies. The next day, a meeting of the Committee of Correspondence took place in Boston, with committees coming from other neighboring towns to join in. Immediately, the plan emerged that what was needed was a united response from all of the colonies. What they were proposing was a total boycott of all British goods, both imports and exports. The Bostonians called not for a regional boycott, but rather for all of the colonies to join in. The hope being that a boycott would drive events far enough that the British would be forced to back down in their own economic self-interest. What emerges here is a major problem, and one that had thoroughly vexed the Americans during the Townsend non-importation period. Throughout the colonies, there was a universal agreement that the Boston Port Bill was outrageous. There was zero problem at all at getting everybody on board with condemning it. The problem was that nowhere could a general consensus be formed on just how to react. Even in Boston, there were groups that advocated just paying for the tea and moving on with their lives. They destroyed the product prevented the duty, and obviously made their point. Now, 
pay the duty and come on, let's move forward here. There was also the fact that the colonies were still competitors with one another. There was palpable fear that if not everybody got on board with a boycott, it would open up the door for non-compliant colonies to unjustly enrich themselves. This, in turn, led to questions over the scope of the boycott itself and what, if anything, should be excluded from it. The colonies at this point were left with three options on how to respond. They could all come together for a total boycott of the British. They could opt for a Congress, as Hancock had suggested back in March, to decide a response. Or they could encourage Boston to pay the money and move on. No matter what the response was going to be, though, there seemed to be a general agreement that it was going to have to be a unified response not just from Massachusetts, but from all of the colonies together. Josiah Quincy Jr., Adams' co-counsel during the trials on the Boston Massacre, wrote a pamphlet that May, imploring the colonies to stand or fall together. With everybody openly condemning the British, the question quickly turned to exactly how they were going to respond. I plan on spending the remainder of our episode today moving through the colonies and seeing just what their plans were. Of course, we need to start in New England, where even in Boston there was not exactly a group consensus. There was that group that did favor paying for the tea. However, in general, as one drew closer to Boston itself, most of the support tended to move in the direction of a general boycott of all British goods. In Rhode Island, both Newport and Providence, the leading ports in the colony, immediately agreed to halt trade with Great Britain. While the immediate outpouring of support must have been a welcoming sign, other port cities were more resistant to the idea of a boycott. In what will become a reoccurring theme as we move through the rest of today, there was a sense of reluctance for many. It is not that they disagreed with the idea of a boycott. However, they feared that a holdout port would benefit from that unjust enrichment. Within Boston itself, there was a sense that a general boycott would be devastating to the local economy, with plenty of the merchants within the city falling into that camp of wanting to just pay for the tea. The debate extended further over the scope of the proposed boycott. The exclusion of British goods was obvious. However, what about items from the West Indies? Samuel Adams was in favor of a complete boycott, whereas many merchants wanted to keep the valuable lumber trade with the West Indies open. New York would begin their own debate on the matter on May 13th. As was the case in New England, opinions on how to respond varied. Those most loyal to the British position fully believed that the Bostonians were going to ultimately cave into the pressure and just pay for the tea, thus resolving the crisis. On May 16th, a general meeting of the merchants took place with the popular opinion emerging that Boston probably should pay for the tea, but that the question of non-importation should also be taken up. Yet again, though, we see that the colonists, while in support of non-importation, did not want to formally commit to such a plan before they knew the response of the other colonies. 
at a meeting on May 19th. The different factions argued between either taking immediate action or moving for a more measured response after wanting to see what the other colonies did. There was that real concern amongst the merchants that a sudden boycott would devastate the New York economy, and they were less than eager to rush headlong into it. What emerged was a committee of 51 to decide exactly how to respond. The faction calling for the immediate action quickly fell from favor, as the wait-and-see approach took precedence. On May 23rd, a subcommittee was formed that included, amongst others, John Jay, who were set with the task of writing the official response. The committee sent their assurances that they sided with Massachusetts. However, that, for the moment at least, they were not going to agree to anything outright. Feeling that this was more than just a Massachusetts problem, but rather an issue for all the North American colonies. Just like that, New York had put in their vote for a Continental Congress. When Paul Revere arrived in Philadelphia with news of Boston's response, the colony immediately took up the issue. As with New York, Philadelphia had been one of the first to oppose the Tea Act. They had themselves chased the Polly away shortly after the destruction of the tea in Boston. The Philadelphia leadership, primarily Thomas Mifflin and Joseph Reed, set out to score a huge ally to their side, the always moderate John Dickinson. If they could score an alliance from somebody with a reputation of measured moderation like Dickinson, they felt confident that they would be able to sway the meeting in the direction of support for Boston although it took some strong nudging and a healthy amount of alcohol. Dickinson did agree to join Mifflin's contingent. The response from Philadelphia all but mirrored that from New York. They were in support of a boycott but agreed that this was bigger than any single colony and that a general congress was going to be necessary. They also decided to run the idea by John Penn. As expected, Penn had no interest whatsoever in an assembly. However, nobody really expected to win that point anyway. As with New York, Pennsylvania sent out their verbal support to Boston, well, calling for a Congress of all the colonies before they committed to any more of a concrete action. It is worth noting that publicly, there was a strong showing of support from the citizens of Philadelphia. On June 1st, the day that the port bill went into effect, there were noticeable closures throughout the city as a show of solidarity. Moving on to the south, both Virginia and Maryland would follow suit with their northern colonies. Virginia at least tried to go with a more moderate response in an attempt to not have the Earl of Dunmore, the colonial governor, disband the House of Burgesses. Drafted by Richard Henry Lee, the Virginia response made the same declaration as everybody else, that the attack on Boston was an attack on all of them. Lee further echoed the calls for an intercolonial congress. Some cautioned that this was going too far, and that it would get the Burgesses disbanded. The decision was therefore made to wrap up all of the other business first, before moving into the petition from Lee. In the meantime, they would take the super tame measure 
of acknowledging Boston through a day of prayer on June 1st. As it turns out, the day of prayer was far too much for Dunmore, and he promptly disbanded the House of Burgesses. This proved to be a surefire way to whip up the Virginians, and the next day, 89 members of the House of Burgesses signed on in their support for a Continental Congress. The Virginia Declaration, which begins by reminding the king of their loyalty, goes into a short, though strongly worded, description of how their rights had been again and again violated through the attack on their sister colony. They stated that, We are further clearly of opinion that an attack made on one of our sister colonies to compel submission to arbitrary taxes is an attack made on all British Americans and threatens to ruin the rights of all unless the united wisdom of the whole be applied. Virginia called for an annual Congress of the Colonies to meet to deliberate on the united interests of all of them. Among the signatories to this declaration were Peyton Randolph, Richard Henry Lee, Francis Lighthorse Lee, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. Yet another vote for a Continental Congress was now in the books. Maryland would meet on May 25th. There was an immediate call for an embargo on trade with Britain, as well against any colony that continued to conduct business with the mother country. Maryland decided that they really wanted to throw everybody for a loop, and further passed a resolve that until the port of Boston reopened, lawyers were to refrain from filing claims against colonists made by British creditors. This means that for any Maryland resident who defaulted on debt, creditors back in London would be effectively unable to touch them and attempt any kind of collection. Maryland, therefore, is something of an outlier for having agreed immediately to take a decisive action against the British. As with all the other colonies, though, they did agree that a Continental Congress was going to be necessary. The final colonies to respond were the southernmost, the Carolinas and Georgia. Charleston had, of course, already and independently of the northern colonies, been involved in resisting the Tea Act. The debate over how to respond in Charleston mirrored that of the other colonies. There was widespread agreement that action was needed. There was more or less agreement in what needed to be done. But, as elsewhere, there was concern of people taking advantage of the situation. They agreed that a general meeting of the colonies was going to be necessary. Moving into the beginning of June, there was a widespread movement towards condemning those despotic acts. Despite their solidarity with the colonists in Boston, however, the Carolinas and Georgia all agreed to take the same action as those colonies to their north, condemn the act, make assurances that they stood with Boston, followed by agreeing that a wait-and-see approach was going to need to be the order of the day. There was a sense of disappointment in Boston over the response of the colonies. There was certainly no lack of well wishes from their colonial neighbors. However, Boston had been hoping that everybody would have done something a bit more dramatic. Outside of Maryland, everybody seemed to want to take a position that proved annoyingly tepid to the aggrieved Bostonians. 
there was a sense that waiting for a general congress would prove to be too little, too late. On May 13th, Thomas Gage arrived in Massachusetts to take over from Hutchinson as the governor of the colony. Everybody went through the proper motions of a ceremony to welcome their new governor, but Gage was never deluded into believing that he was going to be a popular figure. Quickly after his arrival, it became clear that a new era was at hand. On May 25th, Gage was presented with his new council, which he promptly used his new powers to completely gut. Among those prevented from taking a seat on the council was John Adams. As for Thomas Hutchinson, he quickly packed his belongings and left Boston for good on June 1st. What can we make out of Thomas Hutchinson? He was born in Boston back in 1711 and had spent his entire life up until June 1st, 1774, living in the colonies. He was a great-grandson of Anne Hutchinson. Nobody could question his American pedigree. He had at one point been something of a wonderkin and was a close ally of then-Governor William Shirley. We saw him ally himself with Benjamin Franklin in Albany some 20 years earlier in support of the Albany Plan of Union. It seems now almost absurd that the Plan of Union is something that Hutchinson could have ever supported, let alone co-authored. There is evidence that the last decade had done much to wear down Hutchinson and push him into a far more authoritarian role. I want to be clear that these are my observations after having talked about the man for over a year now. Hutchinson at times really just seems to be a guy trying to do his job. As time goes on, he becomes far less sympathetic to the colonists. This coming after he had personally suffered at their hands for years. Remember that it was his house that had been dismantled nearly brick by brick during the Stamp Act riots. By the end of his time in America, he seems completely worn down by it all and absolutely sick to death of the colonists. At times, however, I think we should acknowledge that he did manage to hold things in Boston together. His quick response following the Boston Massacre seemed to diffuse things enough to prevent outright rebellion right then, during the early spring of 1770. As Hutchinson sailed away from the colonies, both Lord North and Dartmouth shouted from the rooftops that Hutchinson was not being fired, but rather they were honoring his request to be recalled. They were not about to give the colonists a victory and let them think that they had successfully managed to get Hutchinson recalled. They instead stressed that Hutchinson had asked to return home, and they were merely granting that request. This is despite the fact that by the time that Hutchinson left, he had virtually no authority left in the colony and was no longer in a place to effectively lead that colony. Hutchinson therefore sailed away with the official line being, You can't fire me. I quit. At the beginning of the summer of 1774, the colonies were looking at an increasingly bleak situation. Boston was now under the leadership of Thomas Gage and found itself under military occupation. Throughout the other colonies, everybody agreed that action was needed, but nobody wanted to act without reassurances from everybody else. 
despite being initially dismissed back in March, when suggested by John Hancock. By June, the winds were blowing in the direction of a Continental Congress being called. Next time, as Massachusetts deals with their new military occupation, elsewhere, plans begin coming together for a meeting between the colonies. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we prepare for the First Continental Congress. Congress.